I really wanted to put the whole of our practice into a context because in the rest of the evening after me, we'll end up with instructions for practice and we'll start with really formal practice tonight a little bit. So I think it's really important to know where we're going and what the practice is all about. And uh, I hadn't planned to start with this, but I realized as Carrie was uh, finishing her wonderful presentation of all the things you need to know, the final end of it are all kinds of terrible things that can happen to you when you're here, <laughs> ending up with the, you know, the grand finale of the mountain lion. And people come, and especially people who haven't been here before, it's an alarming beginning to a week to hear all the things that could befall you when you're here. And, uh, and the fire right before that, and how to ring the fire alarm. And, uh, at the end of what I need to talk about tonight with you, I'll uh, tell you what are the traditional, uh, uh, 11 benefits of metta that come from, uh, centuries ago. And the rubric is people who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. So we'll end up saying that more after that. We'll end up saying that after we told you to be careful of all of those things. And, uh, it also passed through my mind that I heard from one of my teachers, uh, Joseph Goldstein, years ago, that at some point when he had begun his metta practice and was very enthusiastic and really knew that metta was a protection. It was taught, according to the tradition, by the Buddha to the people he taught as a protection against the things that are frightening, monks that were going out to practice on their own. In the story of the Buddha's own enlightenment, maybe we'll talk about more in the course of the week, on that very night that he sat down steadfastly, he was protected from his mind being distracted by his tremendous force of metta. So it's really it was meant to be a protection. And my friend Joseph said that uh, he was seriously and intensely practicing and walking down a street, I think in Massachusetts, and a menacing dog came towards him with a menacing look and barking. And he stopped, but he radiated out this great force field of metta, and the dog bit him. So, <laughs> so the, the end of that story is don't walk on the ridge in the morning or in the evening at sunrise or sunset. And what I really, really believe is that it is a protection. It's a protection against the perturbation of the heart. It's a, it protects the spirit from becoming disconsolate. It protects the mind from being in aversion, in um, contention with anything that happens. It really keeps you safe from suffering. And that, on, on that level, I think it's true. But about the poisons and the weapons and the fire and the mountain lions... There are really three things that I want to say about metta practice, and we'll reiterate them, I think, all through the week. The first is that mindfulness is really a, a, a form, a metta is really a form of mindfulness practice. I think um, perhaps many people are introduced to mindfulness practice first with the understanding that we pay attention fully to what's happening in every realm of our experience in our bodies, in our minds, 
moment to moment at what's happening out there and what's happening in here. And we really, over time of paying attention, really get to know profoundly what's true about life, what's true about the mind, what's true about the causes and the end of suffering. I think that metta practice is a particular form of mindfulness and particularly in the in the way that the Buddha mapped out four particular ways in which we could pay attention. One of those particular ways, the third particular way for paying attention, is paying attention to the climate of the mind, what's happening in the mind moment to moment. And specifically in metta practice, we are paying attention to the presence or absence of goodwill in the mind from moment to moment. And really the Buddha taught that what you put your attention to, what you ponder, he said, is what becomes a habit in your mind. And so you can think about this week of being a week of pondering goodwill, pondering blessing, pondering as well because it'll come up with in this practice, the limitations to goodwill, the, the things in our mind, the habits of our mind, the views in our mind that from time to time really block our innate capacity to wish well wholeheartedly and diminish our happiness and cause suffering. So I think this is a profoundly awakening practice. I think it's a practice of wisdom with this particular focus. And really particularly not only looking at what are the, what's the contents of the mind, but particularly filling the mind with blessings, inclining the mind towards goodwill. The second thing that I really want to remind myself and all of us of is that uh, the goal, I think, for myself, the goal of metta practice, the goal of all my practice, is to so habituate the mind to goodwill that it stays in a place of goodwill, even when it's challenged, especially when it's challenged. And if it's shaken from its place, I like to read the descriptions of the Buddha and they talk, that particularly describe his unshakable equanimity, his unshakable poise, his unshakable goodwill. I have shakable poise. When I'm startled, I am shaken and I lose my equanimity. I think this is about discovering over and over again that you can get it back again. It's the practice of returning to a place of a non-contentious mind. If you think about goodwill, the, 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 the sense of goodwill being not fighting with anybody, not being in contention with anything or anyone. It's very clear to me that this is not about liking everyone. Then when, when the, the, in the Metta Sutta, when it wishes well to all beings, omitting none, it doesn't say you have to like them, all of them. It's about loving all beings, but not necessarily liking them. And I understand that loving to be maintaining a compassionate, kind goodwill based not on um, having uh, forced your mind into that as a dull habit, but having realized, really, that all sentient beings, all human beings, for sure, like myself, want to be happy, they're struggling to be happy. They're trying the best that they can to be happy. 
as I am, and life for everyone is difficult. There's a beautiful line in this description of what this kind of universal love is by a teacher, a great teacher who died in the last decade of the 20th century. Uh, a European uh, born in Germany became a, a monk and lived his life in Sri Lanka and died in his late 90s. Nyanapanaka Mahatera wrote a, a, a long poem, really, an essay poem on the meaning of love. But this one particular line touches me so much. Love that embraces all beings, knowing well that we are all fellow wayfarers through this round of existence, and that we are all governed by the same law of suffering. That everybody is having a life of challenges. Not because it's a mistake in life, but because the nature of life is change and challenge and adjusting to it. And when I remember it, I'm a different person. I had occasion just this week, uh, my health is quite good, but I, for reasons of study, I was, uh, I spent some time in a uh, cancer treatment center in the Bay Area. And uh, I was aware when I walked in the door that it's quieter there in the waiting room than it is in other places. And people don't look very well, they look paler. And people are so kind. The personnel, that the nurses that come to get them, the registrars that come to sign them in, are just so kind. And I thought to myself, I watched how normally when we uh, see people come out in a waiting room and they call a name of a person to come in for the next one, they call the person's name. Sometimes they extend a hand and shake that person's hand. And I saw someone come over to a woman and put her hand on her shoulder and lean over and give her a kiss on the forehead. It was just really just a, such a loving moment. And I realized that I was very touched by the kind of spontaneous intention of kindness when we are faced with the fact that people are in difficulty. And I realized that the whole world isn't having that particular difficulty at this point. But the whole world, if I thought about it, is always having a difficulty. We're each having a difficulty. Fellow wayfarers having our difficulties. And if I remember that, I'm kinder to people. And I, metaphorically speaking, I lower my voice and I greet them more kindly. I think that's really what we are finding is our true nature and habituating as our way of being. Not only because it's a nice thing for other people, but because it's a lovely thing for ourselves to live as a kind being in a world that's a difficult world. Offering kindness. I want to say also that I think that when we continue this practice of wishing well, as we will ardently throughout this week, the mind becomes more and more concentrated and still. And the things that one hopes to really realize in meditation, 
the truth about how life is, how the mind is, how we is, are, the truth about suffering and the end, the possibility of the end of suffering, not the end of pain, but the end of suffering, that we could be, each of us, the kind and um, compassionate person that we're equipped to be. I think it's an extraordinary thing to be a human being. The Buddha said that uh, this human realm was the best possible realm to be born into in all the Buddhist cosmology of realms, because this is the realm of 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes. This is the realm in which there are things that pain us and things that pick up our spirits. And it's the realm in which we have empathy, so that we can intuit that the people around us, and even the people not around us, but the people we know are all full of, all over the whole world, have the same 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes. And it converts us to kindness and forgiveness and tolerance and acceptance. And really the third, the third point that I wanted to make, and I probably have already made it, is that this whole practice is based on really the faith that that is the innate predisposition of human beings, that we are inclined to take care of each other. In the Metta Sutta, it says, just as a mother would give her life to, to protect her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings. And sometimes I think, well, we say that just as a mother, and sometimes I like to say just as a parent, Sometimes I like to say, just as a person. Because mostly, mostly, I think human beings, when we are born with healthy neurology and we have a reasonably healthy family support and social support, we really are inclined to the good. And it's wonderful to see that as it emerges in ourselves and as we see it emerge in other people. We can care about people. I think that for myself, the, the, the ability to care seems to be so crucial. If I care about myself, care about other people, I don't feel lonesome in this world. I feel like I'm kept company by everyone I know and everybody I don't know. Even here, as we go through this week together, everybody here that you won't look at or talk to will keep you company. When I was thinking about that today, um, I was thinking about what I was going to say, the line suddenly went through my mind about um, the formal invitations to weddings in the 50 years ago when I got married. And they normally began, the pleasure of your company is requested at such and such. But really, the pleasure of company, the pleasure of feeling that we're not alone, that we're accompanied, that is a pleasure to not be alone in this world, to be relational. Maybe I think that's all we are, is relational. And maybe there's nothing but relations, not separate beings. But life unfolding in these myriad relationships. So I thought, what could I tell as a story about, um, that would be an example of when people are clear about what's really true, that they are kind and they take care of each other. 
I just thought about telling you about the cancer treatment center as I was sitting here. The story I brought to tell you was one I just read yesterday. It's a, uh, I read the summary of um, uh, a review of the new book, Fly by Wire, which is the story of uh, the plane that recently landed in the Hudson River. So probably you all know about that. Uh, but it was a U.S. air flight. And it was bound from uh, LaGuardia Airport in New York for Charlotte, South Carolina, North Carolina, wherever Charlotte is. Um, and when they took off, probably you know the story, they were just taking off from LaGuardia and a flock of Canadian geese flew into the engines and both engines were immediately knocked out. And so it's quite a gripping story about uh, the two men who were piloting that plane, uh, Captain Suttermeyer and uh, Sullenberger, Captain Sullenberger and Captain Skiles. And uh, what happened in the three and a half minutes between when the birds hit the motors and the plane came down into the Hudson? First of all, nobody was... Nobody was um, Every life was saved. Um, the one person that was uh, quite hurt was the flight attendant in the way tail of the plane, and she'll be fine. Everyone got out of the plane. Everyone was able to evacuate the plane as the water was rising, apparently, chest level by the time the last of them were out. They stood on the wings, and they were rescued. There was no way to land the plane with no motor and no thrust, on, uh, you couldn't glide it into any of the runways. They weren't long enough. It wasn't safe. And so in a very short period of time, Captain Sullenberger had to decide that he couldn't land on that, on any available runway. And, um, one of the, it recounts that the flight, the flight tower said, well, do use such and such a runway here. And he said, unable to do that. We're going to have to go in the Hudson. And then they glide in, and he and his uh, co-pilot both have flown forever, very serious, disciplined, um, careful people, did everything exactly right. And uh, they said that at the moment, I was very touched by this, said at the moment before the, the plane hit the water, Captain Sullenberger said to his co-pilot, Got any ideas? <laughs> and Captain Skiles said back, actually not. And then they hit. In the meantime, causes me to have, to start to cry every time I tell it. They, uh, the captain did not have a chance to tell anybody what was happening because they was so busy trying to make all the arrangements to land this properly. And, uh, at one point, they, they, clearly, people knew they were going down. He said, um, this is the captain, brace for impact. That was the whole thing that people heard. And they said there was a woman in the middle of the plane carrying a baby on her lap who didn't get the instruction. I mean, it wasn't clear from the article whether she spoke English or not. Carrying a baby... The instruction is made. She looks like she doesn't know it. The man next to her reaches out for the baby. She gives it to him. He braces the baby, and they land. 
And every time I read that or I tell it to somebody, I start to cry again because I think that that's what we do when we're in trouble like that. It doesn't matter if the trouble is my trouble or your trouble or my baby or your baby. But give me the baby just and put out your hands. Give me the baby and we do it because that's what people do. There was an 85-year-old woman with a walker and they got her out of the plane. And it was because people were disciplined and paid attention. They knew what to do. The reason that I chose this story is for two, I had two reasons. One of them is I thought it so made the point that when we're clear about what's happening, we take care of each other. That's one of the things. And the other part was that these two pilots were able to do that because they had practiced so much that even under challenged circumstances, their attention did not flurry. They stayed steady in it. And really what we're practicing here all week is how to stay steady. Every kind of feeling will come. Every kind of thought will come. You know, you come on retreat, particularly the first time, you think about what am I doing here and why? And Lots of things happen. And the mind goes from happy to unhappy to comfortable to uncomfortable. And this is about learning to hold the plane steady through all of that. And the technique of being, of reciting blessings for ourselves over and over again. It's a way of saying this is a challenging situation, even when it's not particularly challenging. This whole life is a challenging situation. The whole life is a challenging situation. There isn't a moment in which we couldn't reasonably say, may I feel safe? May I feel happy? May I feel strong? May I live with ease? That's equally true when we're at ease and nothing terribly challenging is happening as when the plane is going down on the Hudson or we get a diagnosis of a dire illness. There's always... This is, this is, the whole of life really is a situation that's worthy of blessing. And we'll have, uh, really we'll use the technique of saying phrases of goodwill that are really blessings. We'll say them for ourselves and then we'll say them for, uh, people we know well, and then for people we don't know so well. We'll say them for people we like a lot, and for people that have been challenging in our lives, that even the memory or the thought of them stirs up the mind. And it's like flying a plane and trying to land it properly, how to steady it, and being able to keep the attention, not in an aversive relationship, with whatever is happening on the outside or the inside, whatever thought or whatever person has arisen in the mind, to be able to say, in this moment, may I feel safe, may I feel happy, may I feel strong, may I live with ease. I think the ultimate safety is the safety of one's own benevolent heart. That whatever is happening in my life, I can live in the middle of it with a heart that's peaceful, 
and and connected to myself and to all beings. I can remember that I am part of this whole extraordinary unfolding of life on earth. Actually, if we think about safe, that's the ultimate safety. You think about um, There's a lot of talk about safety. Many of you flew here today. Many of you went through safety checks and is this safe? There are a lot of things that are in the world that we would say on a, on a, on a level of the material world might be safe, might be not safe. But life itself, to be able to say, my heart is safe from losing its ability to bless in this moment. And then I'm really, I'm really free. That would really be liberated. So these are the 11 benefits of metta. I'd like to invite you to uh, say them back to me. We'll just do it as a call and response. People who practice metta, Sleep peacefully. peacefully. Wake peacefully. peacefully. Dream peaceful dreams. dreams. People love them. them. Angels love them. Angels Angels will protect them. them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. unconfused. And when they die, die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. realms. I wish that for all of you and all of us. Maybe you all. That is the ultimate home, the end of uh, the end of the Wizard of Oz, where the the discovery is made that really what you need to do to be home is to click your heels together three times and say, "There's no place like home." My uh, my latter day grown up understanding of that is that the home that I'm looking for is that home that lives in my own heart with its ability to love. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.